Hello and welcome to the Wittered Report podcast, where we empower business advisors to transform businesses. This podcast is your source for information and news you need for your accounting, bookkeeping, or tax practice. Don't forget to check out scalingnewheights.com for information about our conference in June. And if you subscribe to this podcast, we will have a special registration offer just for you coming up soon. And now your hosts, Joe Woodard and Heather Satterley. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Woodard Report podcast with Joe Woodard and Heather Satterley. Hey, Heather, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Joe. Always wonderful to hang out with you. Yes, it is. We're get, we have an amazing topic today, Heather, as you know. We're going to be talking about that stubborn client. So I'm going to lead in with the six principles that I cover in a little bit of a monologue here uh, to address the six steps to overcome the client's resistance to change or price or whatever it is you're trying to get them to do. And then I'm going to be very interested in getting Heather's take on that as a CPA practitioner and thought leader. So first, we're talking about clients that won't listen to us when we know that they need to listen to us. And that could be about everything from price to advisory to process or whatever it may be. And so to quickly summarize these six steps, we have to first understand that all human beings are not equal. The client has a certain personality style, a worldview, different motivations, different Um, emotional set, psychological points of view, and the situation in which they find themselves is is always relative too. It could be a, a stressful environment, a stressful season. So if we can find what the seasonal patterns are, the workflow patterns are, and most importantly, who the client is and what motivates them as a human being, uh, they'll be much more responsive to what we have to say. Now, for that, I recommend an assessment called the DISC, D-I-S-C, DISC, that's the acronym, and it will allow you to determine if your client is more dominant, D, intuitive or inspirational, I, supportive in nature, S, or if they are more processor-focused, processor-centric and detailed-centric, which is the C element. Now, knowing what their core kind of motivation is in life. Organization or inspiration will help you to meet them where they are. And look, I've given clients DISC assessments. They're surprisingly open to it. If you catch them at a time where they have a minute um, and they're willing to go through the process, uh, right time, turf, and tone, people love to discover new new things about them. So uh, then the, the next step is to understand how your client's defensive mechanisms work. Now, I know it sounds like we're being a little bit uh, of a psychologist instead of a bookkeeper or an accountant, but let's just face it, uh, those two things are not entirely separate. And, and so I say half jokingly. So, you know, this is a relationship and all relationships must be navigated. So first, the, the personality style uh, mixed a little bit with their environment that affects that style. The second is, what are their defense mechanisms so how are they going to respond when they feel threatened, fearful, when you're giving them bad news about their tax liability, about the condition of their financial position or performance, their cash flow projection? Um, so there's a test that you can run, um, and, it, and it's a book in a book called Positive Intelligence. You can find a lot of these resources on our 
talk sheets for these podcasts at water.com slash podcast. But this book called Positive Intelligence provides an assessment where you can determine if your clients have the defense mechanisms of being hyper-rational or restless or controller or avoider. But what I can tell you is every single human being has the judge. So if you've ever felt judged by your clients, it's not because they're a bad client, it's because they're a human being and they're using a judgmental attitude of you or your work product or your people or their own people or sometimes even themselves as a way of of assigning necessary blame to try to enact justice out of a situation that seems out of control. Don't take it personally. Just navigate it for what it is. They feel threatened. They feel afraid. If you'll go to the root of the problem and make them feel more comfortable, you'll see those defensive mechanisms coming down. Now, perhaps the most important one on the board is to discover the client's why. Why do they do what they do? What is their true north? What is their dream? The the other way to phrase it is, they have a journey, and if you will relate to them as the protector of that journey, then you will not only identify the why, but you will partner with them around the why. And you can either create a permanent framework for all of the, the, the news you have to share or the things that you're asking for, or you can constantly reinforce to bring them back into that framework as necessary that I am here to help you. Um, and that could be the higher principle they follow, the change they want to see in the world. All of those things influence their why. Um, the other thing is to find out the immediate motivation, the sort of carrot that motivates them, just like you would with anybody in life, including an employee, um, so that you can, uh, that's more of immediate reward where the why is long-term journey. Uh, in step five, you've got to provide accountability. I mean, folks, a lot of times we engineer a problem because we're not giving to the client the structure and the runway and the timetable necessary to give us what we need. A good example, if you know that you need W9s in January, you need to be asking for those throughout the year. You need to create a process by which W9s are collected every time a new vendor record is entered into their QuickBooks or Zero account or whatever GL system you use. If we wait until January to demand 100 W9s, can we get all that mad at the client for not having them to us in time? So if we will do accountability, reasonable runways, and pervasive reinforcement throughout the year, we can engineer mutual success. And then the last one is don't be afraid to confront. This is really hard for a lot of accountants and bookkeepers because we tend to be process people and process people and detailed people love absolutes. We don't like the messiness of human relationships. That's a lot of the reason that we gravitated toward things we can fully control. But for whatever reason, you might not like confrontation. I say might not. If you're a D in your DISC assessment, you thrive with confrontation. But if you're a C, if you're an S, or you're an I, you typically don't like it. And it just means that you have to learn that it is not a negative experience. It is a positive experience with a momentary wake of negative emotion. And if it is done timely and on the right time, turf and tone, that means you will engineer that positive experience. A small confrontation now will avoid relationship damage for you and the client long-term. So Heather, now that I've bulleted through those six strategies for overcoming client stubbornness, um, what are your thoughts about all of that? Well, I think it's, you know, I love the idea of having clients take personality tests. 
Um, I do wonder, you know, I, I'm guessing a lot of accountants are thinking, how am I getting my client to take a personality test? You know, in, in, in my practice and throughout my career, you learn the hard way. Right? You learn the hard way. Uh, you get to know your clients and you start to run on gut instinct. And I think one of the things that's really important as a business owner um, and as a, you know, somebody in the accounting profession that is dealing with clients, dealing with team members, is that you, you need to be aware of your own personality and the way that you're reacting to your clients and to your team members as well. So I would say I love having the clients, you know, do these these assessments, but I also think it's really important for for you to do them, for you to do them and understand yourself and how maybe there's going to be a little light bulb that goes off that tells you, oh my gosh, that's why I react this way to my clients, um, you know, to my client situation. So I, I love that so much. Um, and I, I love that book. You know, I, I've gone through those tons of personality, personality assessments. I, I'm kind of, I kind of love them. They're fun. You, um, you can get addicted to them. You really you can. can. Yeah. <laughs> you can absolutely get addicted to them. And I think that, you know, it, it's validating too, because especially for us that have been in the profession for a while, when you start to go through these assessments, you start to have all these little aha moments of like, oh my gosh, that's exactly how I've, I've kind of figured that out on my own. So it's it's nice to have that validation, but then there's all these really these really cool gems that you uncover, you know, about both yourself, your client, and your practice as a whole, mm. right? So you start to uncover, um, you know, trends that are happening or things that are happening with all of your firms. And that's where you, you know, those aha moments are the ones that really drive change within your firm. So I love, love, love that idea. So it's ourselves, um, our team members and the clients. Right. But I really like what you said about, about we, we begin with ourselves because not only will it provide a better understanding of the assessment we give to the client, but you know this from being a, a sort of personality uh, assessment junkie as I am too. Um, that they have segments in there for saying, since you are an I, which I am, um, you need to relate, you need to understand when you're relating to a D, you're going to experience these emotions. Or when you're right. relating to a D, you need to change these certain things or modify these certain things about the way you communicate. For example, I's use a tremendous amount of words, which makes me a really good educator um, and podcast co-host but sometimes my wife just wants me to tell her what time it is, not how the clock is made. And um, and because she's a D, she just wants to get things done, keep it simple, tell me the essential information I need to know. Having learned that about her through 21 years of marriage and some personality style adjustments, it means I can relate to her better. And how many of your clients who are small business owners might be Ds? They're very directed people. They're they're outcome driven and that's what led them to business ownership and you're relating to them wrong. No, I a hundred percent. Um, I, that is, that is so true. I think the other thing that I love about bringing this as step one is you're introducing the whole concept of empathy here. So one of the reasons that, you know, clients come to accounting professionals is for that personal connection and that that empathy of somebody who understands business, understands all the complexities and is able to feel that with you, um, which a really great accountant and advisor does, is that they're right in the trenches with their clients and they're they're listening. And our clients want to feel heard. I mean, even if you're a D, I think if you're a D, definitely. <laughs> um, no pun intended, by the way, uh, that, you know, you, you need to feel heard because as a dominant person, that is what 
drives you, right? Is somebody repeating back to you, I hear what you say and you're right. And here's how we're going to navigate that. But if you don't understand their D and all of the complexities, complexities of that, because you're not that, how can you possibly handle that situation? Yeah, I mean, the quick so, rundown is a D wants to know that you're going to move forward in a way that's per plan. The C wants to know how you're going to move forward in great detail. Don't give them enough detail. They panic, right? Right. The I wants to know why we're moving forward at all. And the S wants to know how they can help. So if, and that's just a quick little glimpse and, and Heather's smiling here. You can't see the camera, but because she gets it, she, she's like the junkie on these things that I am. But when you start to understand all the different intricacies of the motivations that go behind these different personality styles, it really will move your client to be less stubborn. Hey, Heather, what did you think about some of the things I talked about with process and run times and accountability? Oh my gosh. So that is, uh, that's a huge thing. So driving change, um, within any organization or with any person, you have to get buy-in and, you know, people are very proud of the processes. Um, well, they're either proud of the processes they put in place, even if they're not the right process anymore, or in a lot of cases, they're really insecure that they are embarrassed by the process they have. And so they try to hide it. Right. So they have they have a, they know they have a really bad process. They know they have a problem and they try to hide it because it's an emotional feeling that they have. You know, if I if I if I show this to this person, they're going to think less of me. Right. So I think it all comes back to knowing who your client is um, and, and, and helping them to feel safe. And I think, honestly, if we were to sum up why a business owner finds an accountant is they want to feel safe. They want to have someone there that has their back, that's going to keep them out of trouble, that's going to help them achieve their goals. And so it's our job to, to do the best job that we can to, to, to deliver that. And process does that. When you tell me what to do and how to do it, and you show me that by doing those things, I'm going to be successful, I feel safe. So yes. absolutely. I feel safe um, and I feel um, equipped. I feel yes. capable, right? Yeah. I feel both of those things. Um, so- and, and listen, you know, what I've learned um, in my, my travels doing this for 25 years, servicing hundreds of clients, is the client may, may give you the impression they want to do it their own way, or they might even think at the outset that they're supposed to tell you how to do it. But once you give them the paradigm shift of saying um, it, that, that I have a process and I will bring that to the relationship... The vast majority of times, I could count on one hand the number of people that weren't relieved by that statement. They just didn't understand that was part of my job description. Right. They thought they give me the process, they give me the tech, and I record keep into their process. Um, so, so listen to me, bookkeepers and tax preparers, especially bookkeepers. They really don't want you to adapt to their process. I promise they don't. They really do want you to pick the tech, to pick the systems. And when you do, and you properly train them and hold them accountable, they'll play in those uh, playgrounds that you build, that you build for them. I, they really will. Um, you know, when I've come up against clients or <clears throat> typically in, in my experience, when you're dealing with a team, <clears throat> it's a little more difficult because you have somebody that is, you know, they're, they're promoting the change, right? They're promoting the change. They may be the champion, but they're not the person that's actually doing the work. And so where you end up with, with kind of a disconnect is you have the person say, we're going to do this. It's a great idea. They're the champion, but they're disconnected from what is going to happen to make that change. 
So they're, they're watching it, but they're not participating in the change. And the people that are actually participating have to feel like they are, they have a say that they're heard, that they have a say and that their feelings are acknowledged and that they're going to have their fingerprints on the end result. Because if they feel like they're part of the solution, then you get buy-in. If they feel like you're dictating a solution to them without any you know, regard for what they're feeling or what they're doing in their job, then they're going to push back on it. And that's where you end up with the stubborn client is that you're telling me what to do. I'm a business owner. I've got this. I'm brilliant at whatever I do. And you're telling me that, that I have to, or I'm doing it wrong or I'm doing, you know, I have to do it this particular way. So I right. totally agree that you bring the tools, but I also feel like there's an art to uh, convincing the client that A, they're capable of doing it and they're going to be there the whole, the, you know, the whole way. <clears throat> and also I found that helping them, leading them to making the decision can be a really helpful strategy. Yes. And that means constantly connecting it back to how their lives are going to get easier. Their visibility is going to increase. And, um, and that it's not so much that you get into the, my way versus the highway or my way versus your way as, um, you're great at building robots and I'm great at building, um, office management and administrative process. Um, you know, let's, let's play to our great. Right. And, um, and varying degrees of greatness is a great term to use with them because you validated their great thing they've built, but there are varying degrees of that greatness. Um, okay. So, yeah. I was going to say, I'd like to speak to, you know, step four, which is really the incentivizing, like, as you, as you say, put the tune on the other side of the door, right. Which Mm -hmm. is a reference to a cat to get them to go through the door. Exactly. I think that that, what you just said about, you know, acknowledging their greatness, um, starting with something small and having an initial small win can really help. So, you know, if you're doing, if you're, if you're implementing software, we'll go there because both you and I have been QuickBooks geeks for our, almost our entire careers, you know, getting somebody to adopt a new accounting system is really daunting. Um, so <clears throat> what I've, I've always tried to do is when we're going through a change like that, I've tried to find an, a win for them really early in the process. So it could be that they, you know, a pain point for them is that <clears throat> they don't, they don't get their invoicing done quickly. So I'll find a feature and I'll focus on that one win before I pull in everything else and make everything, you know, pull the whole, show them the entire solution. We'll fix that one thing and then they'll see that that's easy. And then you've built that trust with the client to say, I heard what you said. This was your biggest pain point. I've now solved it. Um, they're feeling really good about that. And now they're open up to to hear more of what you have to say. And they're more invested in the entire process. Incremental wins are an anchor point, a cornerstone of change leadership. You're absolutely right, Heather. Mm-hmm. Hey, we've got we've got to move on to to uh, from the topic segment of our podcast into a really fun one that you and I have put together where we extract movie quotes with business principles. Uh, they could be TV quotes or movie quotes that have business applications. So Heather, what have you found in your TV and movie watching this past week? Yeah. So this past week I was watching, I've been watching this show that I found on Netflix called um, Ginny and Georgia, which is a a really interesting show. It, it goes into the dynamics of a single mom who's a little bit crazy, maybe a lot crazy and her, her teenage daughter. And um, the mom is, is she's definitely a, 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 (laughs) she's a wild one. And 
<clears throat> she's working in her mayor boyfriend's office doing administrative stuff. And she's also uh, embezzling money. So she's embezzling money by writing checks to cash and going in and, and, and cashing them. Well, they're in the middle of this uh, <clears throat> re-election campaign and their opponent actually figures out, she actually discovers by breaking and entering, which was never brought up as a crime <laughs> in the show either, but uh, break, break, breaks into the office and then breaks into the computer by finding the password and finds, you know, these checks that are written to cash that are not in the system. So she comes in on election day and she's throwing accusations saying that this embezzlement is going on and they pull, you know, they go into a room and they come out and they say, well, there was no crime because the amount of money that should be in the bank is in the bank. And so she put, you know, has a sigh of relief and everything's over. It's like, there was no fraud. And what we discover later in the episode <clears throat> is that a deposit was made that she had been taking those, those checks to cash, but then she made a deposit. So when they reconciled the bank, the bank balance was right. So for me, Joe, as an accountant, you know, I'm my my heart is screaming, my mind is going a mile, you know, a thousand miles a mile, um, thinking about, oh my gosh, that's that's still fraud, everybody. <laughs> Whether you steal and then put it back, it's still fraud. And I was thinking to myself, oh my gosh, they have a really bad process. They have no internal controls. Why is the person who's writing the checks putting the checks into the computer system? So that was my 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 big uh, my big. Well, that's away. that's the problem with watching anything that has to do with forensic accounting, you know, because I've, I've got a police officer friend and he can't stand to watch cop shows because there are these plot holes, these massive plot holes. Um, in your case, the plot hole was that she shouldn't still go to jail and wouldn't still have gone to jail. But right. it, it's all too sad to say it's not a plot hole that that company had no internal controls. That's just no normal. Yes. <laughs> That's that just is normal. You're right. You're right. <laughs> Representative yeah. of reality in, in realistic plot. So, so my favorite uh, TV quote, mine came from the TV as well this past week. My wife and I are binge watching Yellowstone because we didn't start until just like a month ago. And so we got to enjoy now four and a half seasons on this blitz. But um, the in Yellowstone, the very first season, maybe the first episode, uh, the, the, the rancher, and I won't give anything away on the storyline, but the, the guy who owns this huge ranch, big, biggest ranch in Montana, he's got his son in the truck with him and they're riding around the ranch and the, the, the son is the heir apparent of the land kingdom, the ranch kingdom. And the father turns to the son. He says, um, he points at a calf and he goes, what do you see there? And, and the son replies, I see an animal that I need to protect and nurture until I don't anymore. Meaning I've sold it off, right? And the father replies, and this is brilliant. The father replies, well, that's what a ranch hand should see. As a business owner, you should see a financial investment placed within a system designed to generate a profit. Son, make that shift. Now, that's an e-myth principle, right? If, if I'm going to be a business owner, I can't be a ranch hand. And, and I'm going to say it this way. If I'm going to own a bookkeeping practice, I can't be a bookkeeper. If I'm going to own a tax practice, I can't be a tax preparer. Maybe I maybe I can be a tax reviewer, but I can't be a tax preparer. If I'm a bookkeeper, maybe I can be an account manager, but I can't be a bookkeeper. Not if I'm going to build a real business rather than just a sole proprietorship where I I, I work, you know, in the business and on it. So it's the e-myth thing. 
in order to do, and this is the real sadness of that scene, because the son really loved being ranch hand, but he came mm-hmm. to the realization at that moment that if I'm going to be a business owner, I must not do what I love, but instead I must be the person who owns a business filled with people who do what I love. It's the bittersweet of scaling a business. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good one, Joe. And so, so true. And of course, being, you know, a horse lover, my thought was like, no, you need to take care of the horse or the calf. (laughs) So, Absolutely. But you're right. You have to make that shift. And, And that's a really painful choice. If you want to scale your business, you really do have to have that, that shift in your thought process and be willing to elevate. Right. Um, and, and you don't, and, and it's your life. Right. So the other thing that I would say is it's your life. So if you, you want to have a small ranch, ranch hand, yeah, that's awesome. But if you want to truly be the business owner and you know, then you scale. Have, yeah, exactly. If you have yeah. to scale. Yeah. Love so, it. um, all right. So now let's talk about books. This is the next segment. Yes. Um, and I uh, believe that you've brought the book this week for us. What have you been reading, Heather? I have. So I read a book called A Minute to Think by Juliet Funt. And um, what her, you know, she wrote the book to highlight that we live in, as she calls it, an age of overload, which everybody's doing and doing and doing. And they have filled their schedule to the point where they don't have any time to think or breathe or really be who they are. And I read this book because I am, I am a self-proclaimed overachiever slash workaholic. And so I was like, okay, what does this mean? And it was actually really, really awesome. It was a great book. And she actually helps you with really actionable tools to kind of redesign your life so that you resist that urge to fit it all in and give yourself the space to just be. So Joe, if, if you remember when I was a kid, and it's totally different for our kids now, our kids are so overscheduled, but I remember being a kid and I remember having the ability to go or being able to go like to the beach. I live in New England. So the beach was right there, going to the beach and sitting on the beach. And there was something about the fact that I was on the beach. It was quiet. It was beautiful and peaceful. And no one knew where I was. Mm-hmm. No one knew where I was. I was alone with myself. I didn't have a cell phone. My parents didn't. I was supposed to be home when the, when the streetlights went on. Um, But there was something about that, that I actually feel like we need in our lives. And so does Juliet Funt. She says we need to have that. And she calls it white space. She calls it white space. So space throughout your day, not like you go, 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 go. And then you take a vacation and for a week, you, you, you know, you let it all down. You actually put this in throughout your day that you actually Mm. schedule this time for you where you get up and go for a walk or you just sit, you don't have a plan. You have these little blocks of time where it's okay to sit and be with yourself. And that if you do that, if you take the time to pause without something to do, then that fosters creativity because it gives your mind the time to reflect and rest and think. And if you don't- But getting your mind to turn off, I I can go segregate my body. Mm-hmm. you know, and isolate my body, but getting your mind to turn off and to focus on other things takes a lot of discipline. Does she address that in the book? She does. She does. And, you know, she actually gives you tools that you can use, you know, strategies for blocking time and then other daily activities that, that you can do to help protect 
that time. And she yeah. actually calls it decrapifying your day. Which okay. I but I just need to decrapify my mind, you know, I, and that's my biggest yeah. nemesis is the spinning thoughts that I can't get to turn off. Right. Yeah. Well, first, um, a couple of things that she does. So she asks yourself, she, she's, she gives you four questions to ask yourself when you're feeling that you're in that crunch. And it's, is there anything you can let go of? So is there anything at the time that you can just let go of that you don't need that you're doing that really? And I think we don't do that enough in our lives mm-hmm. to like, look at all the things we're doing. I'm like, do I really need to be doing that? Um, where is good enough? Good enough. So like you and I were very high achievers and perfectionists and um, there's good enough and good enough. You need to decide where is that? You need to mm. draw that line. Uh, what do I truly need to know and what really deserves my attention? And that comes back to, Joe, you're always talking about vision, mission, purpose, and that should drive every single thing you do in your life, and your business. And that comes down to what deserves my attention points right back to that. Hmm. Nice. I absolutely uh, love it. So I'm going to geek out with you for a second and tell you where my safe space is that actually lets me turn off my mind. And it may not be the answer for everybody, but I actually hang out in the metaverse when I want to accomplish this. Um, and there are apps that will foster uh, meditation and that that are, are actually visuals mixed with sounds and uh, something just short of hypnotism, of course. But, it, you know, it, that'd be pretty dangerous if your headset hypnotized you, because what if it didn't unhypnotize you? But it does relax the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are athletic uh, games that make you move around a little bit. And then there's just this environment that I can come sit in that's surreal and actually uh, otherworldly. That's peaceful, that's so cool. has spa music playing and the sky is open before you, hot air balloons are flying overhead. And I can just, I can sit there when I, when I can't get to a physical place of relaxation and it, it is an amazing relief. Hey, I, I could talk about that forever, but to move on to, uh, cause we have a couple more segments here. Um, we like to extract our favorite social posts of the week. And I believe that, uh, I think I'm gonna lead out with this one. And then Heather, I think okay. you've got one too. But mine this week comes from Nao Carter Gray, love her. And she says, uh, she asks the question. It was, a, it was a question that I thought was really well presented and appropriate. It says, is over communicating with a client preferred? Um, she said, I'm thinking about creating a weekly update email for clients to test out if it will push the needle forward faster this year. Um, our turnaround time was abysmal last year, so I'm trying to improve. Now, what I love about this is it relates back to the stubborn client. She's creating mm-hmm. these touch points of accountability. Um, and it, she's saying, I didn't give myself the runway to do it for this tax season, but she's trying to think ahead. And I like the proactivity of that. Um, but what I would encourage anybody who, who, and I haven't read every post in the thread or every reply, but what I would say is, and I'm going to answer her question, respectfully answer her question by saying, over communication is not the answer to the problem. How we communicate is the answer to the problem. Um, Because the tonnage of exposure to a message can actually create message fatigue. And the vehicle of email is perhaps the absolute worst vehicle to use. So if you think about the way that we relate to people and the way we respond to people, we do it from our phones. It's all third screen interactions. So I would encourage Neo and anybody who's reading this question, trying to answer for themselves, to find a mobile app, a highly interactive mobile app that's easy for your clients to adopt, not Slack, not Microsoft Teams, but something extremely easy for your clients to adopt that has notifications that will alert them on their screens 
buzz their watches that are part of the world in which they live. And if you will meet them at that third screen, you will find that less communication and more effective communication will will carry the day. And then, like I said earlier, have it run the rails of a very specific set of timelines. Um, yeah, that's what I was going to say is like going back to the accountability piece of this is that just sending an email without any consequence is just getting an email. It's going to end up going into that part of your brain that just says, I don't need to deal with that right now. It has to have something behind it. And that's changing your process in your firm to say, we're not going to, or not that we're not going to tolerate it. That's a really harsh way of saying it, but maybe even flip it on its head and say, we're going to reward when you are actually, um, or you know, give you the, uh, I call it a delay of engagement option. So if they miss a deadline, yes. they've exercised a delay of engagement option that was in their statement of work, passively yes. adopted through inaction that will increase their rates on that statement of work by 10%. You know, no, but however you brilliant. do it, reward or delay of engagement option, it's the same thing. It's an economic factor that says, hey, we're crossing a threshold here. And they're making the choice, whether they're making it actively or passively, they're making the choice. You're not. So exactly. I and you're constantly it. reminding them that the choice is coming. And, Correct. Um, Correct. Okay. So what, what is your favorite social post? Heather? My favorite social post is um, it was a validation post. It was from um, uh, fully Godwin is the, the person that posted it. And, and they said, well, I did it. I ordered a PC. I've run out of patience with my Mac and it's last of Lack of consistent interfacing ability with all our business applications and cloud storage. It just won't cut it. Peace out, Apple. (laughs) And (laughs) I loved this post because I'm a PC girl. I am such a PC girl. And I've kind of felt like not the cool kid. Like Apple is like the cool, it's the cool operating system. Everybody's Apple and you're like, I'm PC. And so to see that (laughs) just gave me personally validation. I was like, okay, okay, we're cool. We're, we're cool. I know you're also PC, Joe. Um, but yeah, so it was kind of refreshing because normally you see the posts that are like, I'm moving on from PC and I'm going Apple and everybody has this big party for them. So to see it the other way just gave mm-hmm. me some a little a little bit of happiness. Well, and yeah, and I think that, that that's a testimony how far PC has come. Um, mm-hmm. and, and quite frankly, how much it is now mimicking the Apple interface and its design and its look and feel. It, you know, it's, one, go ahead, Heather, oh, go ahead. And I have a thought. Go ahead, though. Oh, I was going to say what you may not know about me is early in my career, I actually worked for a store that sold apples and PCs. And so way this is way back when, like we're talking 20 something years um, and they were they were still having the Apple PC debate. And it was like, like a really big thing in our in our company because we sold both and we had the Mac guys and we had the PC guys. And so and back I'm then Mac was so far ahead, so far ahead. Because um, we were back in the DOS days and the Windows, you know, 3.1 days back then. But, but what I'll tell you is, is um, the the bittersweet of it is the Mac will interface with with my text better because I'm I'm not Android. I'm, I'm Apple on everything except my desk. Um, I even want the Apple Car when it comes out. So I'm Apple. I'm an Appleite, except when it comes to my work desk. And, it, and, and the one thing that Apple needs to do in order to convert me to Apple is its, um, its desktop office applications. They, mm-hmm. they, they've got to do better in working with Microsoft as much as possible to get those on parity with, with the PC. 
and I'll be all in because the rest of my life is Apple. Yeah, I'm Apple TV, Apple phones. I have the Apple pods. I'm going to have the Apple car, mark my words, when it comes out in four or five years. <laughs> I'm working I'm hard now to save up for it. Um, but but I'm PC all you can be on the desk. All right, so last thing, you are the editor of The Woodard Report. And if you've not ever experienced The Woodard Report, you can go read it anytime at thewoodardreport.com. Heather took over the mantle of that a few months ago. It is an amazing editor. The quality of the content, the readership rates and everything else are continuing to climb. So thank you, Heather. But every week we're going to pick, or Heather's going to pick her favorite article uh, that's been published over, over the last week or so. So what are you bringing to us today? So I'm actually bringing, it's not just one article. We actually have a new column. So I wanted to, to highlight that new column. Uh, it started the first week of January and it is an advice column. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure that I've seen an advice column for business owners or accountants. And so we are doing that at the Woodard Report. We're really excited about it. Um, Robina Benyon, who is a certified, uh, she's, she's, she's got a lot of accolades, but, uh, she's a certified business coach. She's also a doula, which is amazing. Um, but she's this really incredible mix of business savvy, uh, empathy, um, mind body, like she's got it all. And so she brings this incredible empathy and kindness and intelligence to um, her readers. And so we've had, we've tackled the, um, the top, she's tackled the topics of uh, organizing and strategizing for your year and planning and figuring out how to like work through all of the things that are going on in your life to really increase your focus. Um, She talks about money mindset and how to, um, you know, where you can learn resources and that the article this week was where do you find great re, uh, resources on building wealth and advising to clients who are building wealth? And so they're just really great topics. Um, and she's doing a fantastic job. We're super lucky to have her and, you know, everybody should check it out. She's, she's writing every week. It's going out in our newsletter and uh, yeah. So love that. And they could submit uh, their questions. They um, can, so it's right. right on the website. So if they go to the Woodard Report and they click on one of her articles at the very bottom, there's a link for them to submit their question to Robina. That's woodardreport.com. Fantastic. Woodard and not Report. to be confused with woodard.com slash podcast, which is the podcast page for here. But you know, at the end of the day, if you just go to woodard.com, you can find everything you need. So, so Heather, I think that's a wrap and it looks like we're done. I will see you in one week. Thank you for joining us. For more information, please visit woodard.com slash podcast.